It's always a good idea to follow the custom of the country where we are. And this is the West Coast, and I think all AA meetings open something like this. Hi, folks. <laughs> I suspect that there are some, not knowing us folks too well, who suppose that Alcoholics Anonymous is a sort of a modern and praiseworthy fireproofing against whiskey. <laughs> and so, praise God, it is. And we have needed that proofing. But it isn't quite so simple as that. Under the grace of God, there has been expelled from us an obsession. A veritable lunacy that has plagued men and women for time out of mind in an unprecedented way. And we have been liberated from that. We have been free. But still, that is not all. You and I know that we are a people who have pursued the wrong kind of liberty have looked in the wrong direction for freedom. And now, some of the time, at least, we are looking in the right direction. Toward the right principles, and toward him who presides over us all. Therefore, in its most deeply meaningful sense, AA is the quest for freedom under God. And this freedom, in its myriad forms, has grown among us. And I think one of the greatest and deepest satisfactions that any of us can have is to feel that again we are citizens of the world. Not so much that we are lauded by the world, but that we hold the world's respect and genuine affection. And seldom have few experiences been so affecting as the warm welcome that this great city, its mayor, the several city staff. What the mayor's presence means here, what all this careful painstaking labor on our behalf means is that we are received back as citizens of the world, worthy of understanding, worthy of respect, and worthy of a list when we need it. So do you, Mr. Mayor, our deepest thanks, for which even my adjectives are not sufficient, and to all of your departments and to the host committee of AAs around here, and all the myriad of people who have helped them. One of the themes of this convention is, of course, dedication. We have seen it here in our friends and among our AA hosts to an unprecedented degree. Thank you, sir.
Thank you for coming. Leonard Harrison just spoke to you. Someday, not too far away, there will occur an event which is always critical in all societies and governments, wherever it occurs. And that is the transference of service leadership from the originators to whoever is to succeed them. In our case, to be this board of trustees, composed in part of great friends, who are to be not our governors, but our servants and our administrators. Leonard is the oldest in service on that board, Tomorrow night, we'll talk a little more about it. But I'm sure that it communicated something more to use in words. He spoke in the language of the heart. And in Leonard and successors like him. And in such drunks as we can supply to the outfit, none of them to stay in there too long, you understand. I feel utterly secure for the future if we as a society do our part. So, may on behalf of you all, I thank Leonard, Board's Pants, and Board's Place. one of us is deeply sensible that gratitude is one of the finest emotions that can move the human heart. I think each of us, as he thinks of this occasion, renews his gratitude to Almighty God, who has vouchsafed us his miracle with more evidently in store for uncounted ones. But then each of us commences to think of how this message reached us and how we were able to live long enough to be there to receive it. And in the case of each of us, somebody was there, somebody sustained us, somebody tolerated us in our crazy quest for these wrong freedoms. And this was very often the wife who stayed on and on until the quest had ended in this all but fatal cul-de-sac. This veritable prison in which she 
or he, if he be a husband, may have lived. So I think it is next in order for me to present you Lord, who, like many a woman, stayed on to what seemed a certain end, only to stand here today with me looking at what is just the sunrise of alcoholic phenomenon. Thank you very much. And I want to add my thanks to this wonderful hospitality to come out here in California. It is just the warmest thing, and Bill and I appreciate it so much. And I want to express here, from all, my gratitude to the great happiness of the past 25 years. And in my gratitude, I include you all, newcomers as well as old-timers. For no one link in AA's chain is more important than another. All carry the message, and all share with each other what they have found in AA. It is this sharing that makes AA such a power for good. Much of the world, particularly in this atomic age, is hungry for proof of the power of good over evil. You, AAs, have given us this proof. You have demonstrated that lives can be changed, no matter how low or sordid they have become. That men and women, through God's grace, can be lifted up and re-motivated to become constructive, useful forces. This has been an inspiration and a renewal of faith in many people throughout the world, as well as to the families of AA. I believe this miracle of changed lives has occurred because the principles of AA coincide with the highest principles we know with the fundamental laws of the universe. These principles teach us how to step aside so God can act through us. I'm particularly grateful to AA for showing me personally the way to a better and more useful life. For many years, AA's example has made many of us wives and husbands want to live by the 12 steps ourselves and to help others to still are frustrated and alone to do likewise. The Alamon family groups are a spontaneous response to this vital need. So, speaking for all the wives and husbands, fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, children and friends of alcoholics, I want to thank you, AAs, not only for the happy homes you have restored to us, but the privilege of following the AA way of life for ourselves. Thank you.
gentlemen, can you all hear the speakers clearly? Are we speaking too softly or too loud? Thank you. I was the one who propounded that extremely foolish question because sound in all its aspects is especially of this region. Now considering further people for whom we are grateful. People who have been the carriers, the immediate carriers of this message to us, we could not possibly stand in the same relation to anyone else in the world. There is something singular about it. There is in it a very special language of the heart, a very special kind of gratitude. And I'm beginning to talk, as you see, about my own sponsor, Ebby. And here he sits, praise God, in great form and good order. Ebby's had his difficulties. And I would venture that considering his obstacles, his demonstration is a whole lot better than my own. It was hard to fireproof him against whiskey, and awfully easy to fireproof me. And I think he deserves the greater credit for his wonderful comeback. The great dramatic moment, if not the, a great dramatic moment in my life was the time half drunk when the telephone rang and Eddie was in New York sober. The next moment was when I saw him in my doorway and sensed that there was a subtle change. And then came that vital exchange of communication over a kitchen table and a great big crop of gin, which I was thinking, and he was not. Ah, yes. For me and for him, that recollection is imperishable, because there, one of the first spots of many was struck, which was to kindle this worldwide so, Eddie, come on up and have a go.
said some nice things about me, but we can't hear a word. I said, Monty's right back. Well, I know he did, and I'm grateful to it. You know, I don't deserve as much credit as I've given because I knew Bill from way back around 1911. I shouldn't have been super real already, but we were about 14 or 15. And somewhere like that. And I knew him down through the years. And when I got to New York after I'd been helped by the members of the Oxford group and Sam Shoemaker was sitting right over there and many others. I went over to see Bill. And Bill was just as ready and disgusted with his life as I was a couple of months before that when the boys came to me. So there's a matter of circumstances, and I just happened to be the guy who was on the, in the spot at the time. I tell you, it's nice to be here. This is my first visit to the West Coast. And I've been living in Texas for about seven years. And I'm not a native Texan, but when a Texan can come out here and say that the weather's good, that's something. And it certainly is, if this is a sample of it. I'm grateful that I'm here because, as Bill said, I've had trouble over the years. I've been an in and out of after the initial two and a half years of my sobriety in the beginning. And I don't, seven years ago, I doubted very much that I was going to get through that summer. And I had a little thought of being out here or having another nearly seven years of sobriety, which I have had in Texas. It means to anybody that's having trouble, try it again. Get up and try it again. You won't do it yourself. But you'll get the help from a higher power, I'm sure of that. And I haven't much more to say. Except it's good. And to me, this is nature. I've heard of a work over all these years, but this is my first. You know, 
the whole world and this world of ours of AA, individuals, groups, societies, governments, and life are always in a process of choosing destruction, mediocrity, or greatness in spirit and action. In AA, we say that our 12 step work is carrying the message to the other fella or gal. Well, this is our move towards greatness in action and spirit. In our modest way, practically any act of AA has done some 12 step jobs, maybe a score, maybe a hundred. But what about a person who has done 12,000? And I once stop with the quantity. The quality, after all, was the thing. Because this was Dr. Bob's part. And this lady why certainly, if we call Dr. Bob the prince of all of the 12 steppers, this is the princess, and I introduce you to Princess Ignatius. You know, 
It would be wonderful. All together fitting if there was time to continue on this theme of gratitude, but we've only just started on it. Uh, we're going to say what we think about our friends of medicine and religion. Some pass on to their awards. Sam Shoemaker sitting over there. Other folks that are here. But I think now we have to get into the yarn thing. Because, you know, uh, this is not an occasion really for solemnity. This is a time for joy. It's a time for reminiscence. It's for a time for good old-fashioned drunk yarn. And if I can possibly dress up that old story of mine with a few new trimmings, like the new turnout of a Thanksgiving turkey, well, let's see what we can do with it. Let's see if we can hang the story on this theme just now becoming current in their age, which we call communication. Communication, as we understand it in AA, is something more than fireproofing. I mean, something goes through and behind the fire and puts it out. Maybe I could just give you the sequence of the several communications as they gather together into this wide open river of power the folks of our country. Many of these communications were unusual, some almost unique. And long before I ever thought of getting well, these communications are beginning. And I think the first crucial one was in the office of a doctor. Our friends and psychiatrists and psychologists say that we folks are kind of dreamers and visionaries, but I do think we like word pictures and images. We're images. So let us think back together to the 1930s, where that wonderful doctor and truly great man, Dr. Carl Jung, sought sat in his office, talking to a patient, a drunk who had come from America a year before, one called Roland, who had exhausted every resource that he knew, a gent who desperately wanted to get well. And Roland had been with Dr. Junior, and he had seen a great deal of his inside, fish worms of various sizes and dimensions have been lifted out, and uh, he knew uh, more about those hidden springs and motivated them. Moreover, he had a deep confidence in the humanity of Dr. Jung and his wisdom. So he left there. 
with a feeling of security. But he's away only a little while, and then that obsession, one of the grimmest known to men, the lady called on him, he's drunk, he's sitting before Dr. Young. Well, it so chanced, for it was the will of Providence that he not only sat in the presence of a great physician, he sat in the presence of a man who was great in spirit and action. And to be great in spirit and action, that means greatness and humility. Let me recount in effect what the conversation was. Said Roland to Dr. Carl, you were my court of last resort. Tell me where I stand. Then comes one of the founders of psychiatry, one of the world's leading doctors, and he says very simply, I thought, Roland, when you first came, that you might be one of those occasional, yes, to be frank, rare cases, in which my art might help you, might bring you to recovery. But you are not. This I am sure, you are a drunk of such a serious dimension that there is nothing that I know of in my resources that I can do to help you. Well, now to put it in any vernacular, what do you think this did to Rome? Here was the God of science the court of last resort. We have uh, in AA uh, this technique of uh, helping people to hit box, And it requires no imagination on the greater part of this audience to see that rolling hit bottom were one hell of a bang. <laughs> so the humility of this man Already as the great of the world, to say, of myself, in this case, I'm nothing. How providential. He said more. It was also important to us. This was a turning point, without which we might not be here at all. Said Roland, but is there no, no resource? And the doctor said, yes. But it's very occasional. I am speaking of a transforming spiritual experience. Roland Hayes, you say, oh, you mean faith? Gee, I was once in a pistol and a bachelor, I, I, I got faith. Roland said, that, uh, said, doctor, well, this is fine, Roland. But I am talking about something uh, that is the ultimate in faith. Or is the ultimate in the gift of the gift of God? I mean a transforming experience that will solely motivate you 
I shall restore you to insanity by selling this lunacy. Maybe you don't like the word, but I'm talking about conversion. I'm talking about spiritual awakening, spiritual experience. Known for centuries, known religion, sometimes disgusting. But I can't say why the lightning strikes here or there, down there. So put yourself in the religious atmosphere of your own choice. Admit that you can't do it. Turn to whatever God you think there is. Well, maybe. I wish you well. So Roland did. Found himself in a group stand we tied up with years ago to whom we all might. Talk more about that another time. And Jehovah's Bolt did strike him. Not all of a sudden, but he was relieved. He got sober. There weren't a lot of drunks around the Oscar group that time. This time, uh, Sam will say with some amusement, uh, they were under slight disapproval in this period, as they were, he had housed some up in an apartment house right next to his church, and the boys had got stewed, and they were throwing shoes through the plate glass windows. Anyway, Roland was a recovered alcoholic, and having suffered this way, he heard about my uh, school chum up in Vermont, summer resident, had got his father's car out after escapades without number, and the big payoff, and the safe road to the booby hatch was opened up by this delightful episode. He takes the car. And he runs it off the road at high speed during the night, into the side of a farmhouse, into the kitchen. The car goes right through the wall. It pushes its shoulder sign. A frightened woman is there. And my friend steps out of the door that was still open and bounds deeply. And he says, Madam, how about a cup of coffee? This is Eddie. This is Eddie. So the neighbor says, well, this is it. We're going to bug you right now. Well, at this minute, uh, Roland, stumbling in the neighborhood, heard about this thing. He got a hold of Abby, and he gave him the Oxford group business, and uh, we have the essence of it to get honest with yourself with other people, you make restitution, you work with other folks. You and I know the story. He gave him that, but he gave him the benefit of one drunk talking to another. And he added still another ingredient to this communication, this verdict of this great man of science. God of time about the then awful hopelessness. Ebby is relieved. Ebby thinks of me. Well, what's my story? Here's a quick rundown. I'm born in little Vermont town. Guess we got 50 houses up there. 
I was big and gawky like I am now, and with this, after a dick, generated me in a fierce desire to be number one in anything that I undertook, no matter what the cost. No legitimate ambition, this, no. This is the will to come. So I had to be first in athletics, first in this, first in that, first in the other thing. I get to boarding school. Well, with a good constitution, mother, national endowments, I, I did scoop up quite a lot of first. Everything was fine. There was approval. There was security in that approval. Also in the fact that my grandfather's allowance was handsome. Everything was here but romance. And then she came along, the minister's daughter. So life is complete. I'm now in a state of great joy, liberation, and freedom. Not necessarily of the wrong kind, but I had the wrong idea about my demand for these things. I guess right then. This awful will to dominate. Then I came with proper. The principal walked in one, one morning. And with this dreadful impact on us all, they coolly chattering on one, me on me, he said that the child had died the night before. I have a depression in the last three years. This is not freedom. I'm imprisoned by my own emotions and my lack of control of them. My will to this, that, or the other thing could accept no defeat. So I turned on myself in the punishment. Then Poor man. Well, by and by, life began fighting. Lost his folks, the summer residents up there. I began to steer, and every so tenderly, she brought me back to health. We're married. It's World War One. I'm in New Bedford, Massachusetts. All this time, no drinking. Killed too many of the world. Just Winrow was up. So I'm really down on booze, but here I am in New Bedford, Mass. It's a cotton town in wartime, and the society folks were entertaining. And, uh, I felt awful awkward at these parties. Saw Butler for the first time. I was as scared of him as I was a banker. And I thought, well, I'll take one of Joey Fox cocktails. And I took one, two, three. And I know, just as you know, that those drinks meant more to me than folks who are drinking for relaxation. 
Even relaxation is an American Legion convention. We're drinking for a deeper reason. This began to solve my life problem. Because always, even today, I seem to be walled off from other people. I couldn't get through this thin barrier, and that dropped with the bank. It's gone. I'm part of life at last. I belong. I can communicate. So I start a quest for freedom with the bottle to be my elixir of life. Well, it turned out to be quite a mistake. World War over, back to New York. Here I'm monk city folks, the old inferiority, the bottle again. Oh, I was suffering young men, stand to hang always, but always these episodes, always Lois feeling well. There must be something terribly wrong. Me denying it. I remember one time when I still thought that drinking was, uh, uh, you know, the fault of a good man. Uh, and we had made uh, some dough in the Wall Street boom, and I bought a Packard, uh, about as long as from here at that third foot line. Um, so he's up in a town near my brother-in-law's place. I was supposed to show up for supper. I got talking with the man in the garage. I forgot about supper. I forgot about Lois. It was kind of a bitter night. We needed more garage to get warm. And we kept warming ourselves and Finally, I, I realized that I had to start for my brother-in-law for supper several hours later. I started up the street, and suddenly I realized that it was time to go to bed. And uh, there was a field in the side hill par paralleling the street, and uh, I wandered over in it, and I laid down, and it was a wintry night. And I woke up. Gracious, I was close. I got off it, up the hill to the main street, started down the main street, looked down, and my God, I had on my coat and vest and my, but no pants. Right down the main street. Oh, God, there's no for it. Who I got? And presently, he will be. Maybe within a year. And since I was minus my pen, the unspoken question was, where have you been? <laughs> you know, the very next morning, we found that field, and I was absolved at least from one sin when my shoes and my pants shoes side by side and pants carefully folded there in the grass by my bed. Even then, without knowing it, I was condemned to obsession, to lunacy, and to death without knowing it. And praise God. On the increasing communication of our society. That potentials like me are now coming to a younger folks, 
religious, rather evangelical group, probably from your point of view, but believe me, it saved my skin along with the drunk that was in there. And they sold me on the idea that I couldn't manage my own life. Uh, that wasn't too hard. This stage of the game. They thought I ought to get honest with myself as I had never been before. They thought I could communicate this to somebody, stop living alone, that I should make restitution, that I should try to help others without the usual demands of reward, and that I ought to pray to whatever God to watch. And every didn't try to crowd me, evangelize me. He just left me to mull this over. I had lived in this dark world where he had been and was now out. He wasn't just on the water wagon at that time. He was really relieved. I kept drinking just the same in order to think deeper about it. But the vision of every face and the ring and impact of those words would not leave me at all. Why? We know. Because he had bound me to it in the cause of common suffering, common understanding, and liberating therapy. And I couldn't get away. Well, I thought I'm a Yankee. I can't go into this conversion business and God help me. Evangelism. No, 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 no. I'll go up to hospital and get sobered up. I'll see if there isn't some real clear, uh, logical, uh, intellectual way to get access. But uh, I, I really better be about it. So I showed up at the hospital very strong. As we, we always get drunk on the way, you know, to be sure the last time. Paul Doc Shilkley shook his head. I said, boy, I got something big, Doc, that I guess you have go upstairs go to bed. <laughs> Three days later, I was in bad shape this time. Oh, I'm sober, all right. But boy, am I depressed. Because now I'm caught in this awful clamp that so many newcomers to AA complain about. They say, damn you people, you have sold us on the idea that we're alcoholics. And you've also sold us on the idea that we have to buy this higher power to do much about it. And this we can't buy. So, I was impressed. I had one of these fine modern educations, you know, that said that man was God. Well, I didn't exactly think I was myself, but... Uh, I was, I'd hoped to be on the way there. <laughs> so I'm very depressed. Eddie shows up in the morning, uh, I guess it's about 11 o'clock in the third day. Harry stands in the door. I got thinking about this evangelical group, and I began to be a little suspicious. I said, uh, this bird knows me. And uh, he took it easy the first time. He's going to pour it on heavy. Oh, no. Heavy is true. And spiritual prudence is prudence. A leading virtue in his header. So 
So he just came up and casually said, well, Bill, I heard you landed up here and sort of dropped by and how you getting along. He waited and I asked him, what's that nifty little set of cliches by which you get over the grog business? And oh, oh, you get honest with yourself? You never were before, you talk it out to somebody, you make restitution. Work with other people, play to whatever God there is. I said, then small talk, audition that, and he's gone. This time I am really in the clan. I'm still fighting the idea of God. And I suppose in my particular case, the last vestige of my fine philosophy at Great Depth was squeezed out. And like a little shot, completely lost. In the dark, I exclaimed, if there is a God, will have done so. And then came the gift. The same one you have, but to me, shut. The place lit up. It seemed like I was on a mountain. A great wind is blowing. I sense this is spirit, not air. Then a moment of enormous ecstasy when I thought, I'm a free man. Then comes peace as I lie on the bed. And I say, this is the God of the priest. Then I'm scared after a bit. Maybe I have gone bugged after all. The doctor comes in. Well, no criticism in the profession, but I think that after hearing a yarn like this, that many doctors would have handed me a goofball and said, Bill, think nothing of it, you'll feel better tomorrow. <laughs> but our conversationalist one didn't. Uh, he listened carefully. He said, no, I don't think you're crazy. Actually, I, I can sense somehow that there's a difference in you. Some great psychic event has occurred. I read about these things in the book. I've never seen it, but I, I really think you've got something here. And you better hold on. So I've been holding on and drove a lot of regulars for a while now. So I started out working with drugs. You know, chain reactions. And with this sudden experience, it was certain amount of paranoia. You know, the old Rondiachi stuff fixed all the drugs in the world. They don't fix words of food. And I lecture and I preach and I get sore and nothing happens. One day I'm up at Doc and uh, I said, Doc, uh, they get nowhere with these drunks fast. And, uh, well, he said, uh, maybe you got the cart before the heart. Maybe trying to get them too good by Thursday. And if they're going to get that good by Thursday or even 10 years from Thursday, you got to give them a little more incentive, Bill. Just poke into these people the medical hopelessness of this thing. Quoting authorities on this. And after you identify with them by telling their yarn and they come in to say, this is me, this is me, then give them the medical business instead. The next scene in our little drama is out in... Or let me put it out on the folding drama. In Dowding Akron. Business deal. 
Some folks said I'd better go back to work. I liked being a missionary better and was always allergic to work, but here I was. The deal falls through, and for the first time, I'm not a side of any drunks or any religious group. And I'm alone in a hotel, and I haven't got to pay her home. And here was the first temptation, and just about the last I ever had to drink. And indeed, God had restored me to sanity because I could see the temptation for what it was. I was one of those guys who was scared of the first drink. I, I just took it. This time, I'm scared. And this time, we get another kind of communication. We've been edging up towards it. But this time, I realized that I needed another drunk, quite as much as he could need me. So where was one? I call up one of the local places, drunk in New York, one drunk to work on. He said, well, gee, uh, separately, uh, you're tough numbers, but to put together, I don't know. I talked some more. He gave me a list of nine people. I call them up at the end of the list. is one non-alcoholic gal, dear Henrietta Scheibling, who cared enough, who understood enough, said, come out here. I've got just the man you talk to. I came out. There she stood in the door. She invited me in. We chat a minute. She said there's a doctor in this town. Dr. Bob. There are chunks pieces. He's lost his standing as a surgeon. Everybody's a nervous wreck. He's wanted to stop for years. Doesn't seem to know how. Shall I call up? Well, it's Mother's Day. Henrietta calls up dear Annie Smith from John the Line. Henrietta says there's a man here from New York. Maybe he's got a cure for alcoholism. And Annie said, well, gee, that's fine, but it's Mother's Day. Bob has brought me a potted plant, but he's so potted on the table, under the table, and he can't get out. Next day, over came Dr. Bob. And this time, there was a new quality in our communication. And this quality was that of complete mutuality. This time, no preaching. Each needed the other. And another great part there. And I went to Dr. Hoff, Bob's house to live. Ann was one of those prudent people. She thought I might keep an eye on the old boy. And after one little episode, he said to me, Bill, we, we just better get to work hard with fun. So he called up the city hospital. The head nurse said we got a dandy lawyer around here. Been in there six times for four months. Can't get home even without getting drunk. Knocked down one of the nurses. We got him strapped. He's got the DTs. How will that one do you? Bob says this is wonderful. Put him in a room and give him some group balls and we'll be down when he starts. So we get down. 
And here was the first visit in the hospital. And this boy looked at Dr. Old Bill, AA number three to B. And Old Bill said, uh, after listening to us, well, you're the first guys that I've ever talked to that had any idea what this was all about. So, as I had poured it into Dr. Bob about the medical hopelessness of this thing, once we made the identification, we poured it into Bill, and that lowered him down to notches further. With this lowering process, uh, well, he was like a meatball. He didn't seem to bounce. He, Bill said, hey, it's too late for me. Oh, yeah, I got faith, but God's not facing me. We said, would you like us to come back, Bill? He said, you bet I would. I, I don't believe it will help, but uh, I don't feel quite so much alone. The next morning we came in, and again, the unique and mysterious communication had been at work during the night. Bill said to his wife, these are the fellows that know the score. Wife, get me my clothes. And we are going to get up and get out of here. And the first AA group was born at Akron in the summer of 1935. And I stayed with Dr. Bob during a good part of that summer. And it was awful slow going. But it began to move. And the picture of that little living room with Anne sitting in the corner, reading out of James, his face without work, he's dead. Of all of our prospects, drunk and sober, coming in every morning or every two hours. Of that old coffee pot, the CMA comes today. These are the members. And I think that it is appropriate now for us to pause for a silence. And gratitude for Dr. Bob and Ann and what they were about to be and to do. And after a little meditation about that, I'd like to read to you a short resolution, which I hope is in the language of the heart that I composed for adoption of our board of trustees when Dr. Bob died. And we sent it to young Bob and Sue. Shall we bow our hands to Dr. Bob, in memoriam. Alcoholics Anonymous, herein records his timeless gratitude for the life and works of Dr. Robert Holbrook as a co-founder. Known in affection as Dr. Bob, he recovered from alcoholism on June 10, 1935. In that year, he helped to form the first Alcoholics Anonymous group. This first evening, he and his good wife, Anne, so well tended that its light at length traversed the world. By the day of his departure from us, 
November 16, 1950. He has spiritually and medically helped countless fellow sufferers. Dr. Bach was the humility that declined to all honors, the integrity that brooked no compromise. His was a devotion to man and to God, which in bright example will shine always. The world's fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous presents this testament of gratitude to the heirs of Dr. Bob and Anne. I, for one, think they know what we are thinking and what we are saying. May God will it so. I never had a hard word with Dr. Bob, and I fought with everybody else nearly in this movement. This is the greatest tribute I could pay. Well, let us pass quickly on with the story of communication. Long about after a couple of years of it, a little group starts in New York, one starts in Cleveland. Oh, but it's so painful. It's, it's, it's so slow. Word of mouth communication. Still enough, enough, enough drunk sober to make enough evidence to impress the rest. People turning away and saying, I'm not like that. We thought that it would be a very slow business. There had to be somehow a better communication inside and outside. We had to have more customers. We had to get our story into life. Otherwise, it could become terribly dark. So we began to think in terms of a group of people that could help us, which came to be that board of trustees. We began to think in terms of that book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We couldn't raise a cent anywhere for this book, even though we were already hooked up with Mr. Rockefeller. He very wisely, wisely said, money will spoil this thing, and he pretty much stuck to it. But he did give it himself, and I'll make that point. So, we began the preparation of book, and being a Wall Street operator, uh, I thought right away that stock selling was good, my partner at that time, uh, another gent by the name of Hank, who certainly wasn't suffering from any bust appendix, really got out peddling them shares. And we manufactured the shares in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We're just getting a pad of stock certificates and writing on it, Worth Publishing Company, H. Parker's president. And we sold them to drunks for 25 bucks a share in a book not yet written. Now, I say the promotion job, that's hot. Now then, the question was, who was to write the book? And uh, I still had, uh, you know, that agent to be a number one man, and although I'd never written anything in my life. And so I commenced, and we labored on two, four, five chapters, and each one was a fiercest kind of argument. Out in Akron, they kind of went along with it, but boy, those New York lunch clobbered me from every side, and... I, it, uh, the thing had come to a practical standstill, and the book hadn't yet said what it was about, you know, or kind of, uh, kind of getting up to the point, and after all, what was the point, and 
We said what alcoholism was and uh, into action and uh, for the agnostic, but uh, when will we come into grips with this thing? And I was awful weary as a rouse, but uh, that situation looked better because uh, I had been appointed the umpire. Uh, that if I would listen carefully, that I finally could take a decision about it. So one night, it looked like the book had to have a backbone, and uh, these half dozen words mouth steps, you know, the ones we've just been talking about, I figured if you blew them up anymore, that this reader dropped out at the distance that we couldn't get with this structure than that. If you made a more thorough job, you couldn't wiggle out so easily. So I started breaking the six steps up into smaller pieces, and uh, at the end of time, I found there were 12. And I said, well, that's a good, significantly kind of an apostolic number. And these were the 12 steps, uh, which later found favor with our great friends of religion. They're supposed to parallel the Ignatian exercises. I know one time I told the story of the production of the book. And our several motives, good and bad. And one drunk came up afterwards, shaking his fist, and he said, I did not believe that this great spiritual book could be produced in any such way as this. I am going out of here to get drunk, and he did. But he came back. So we had a book. And we printed 5,000 of them, the money all ran out, and, uh, the Reader's Digest said they were going to print a piece, and they didn't print the piece. The printer let us have 5000 for $500, which was fairly much on the cuff. So what were we going to do with all these books? And just then, the landlord came along and just to Jack Lois and me, and what were we going to do? So folks kind of took us in, and uh, by and by, uh, something terrific in communication happened in Cleveland. First notice we could do this in quantity. About 20 drunks over there, hardly dry behind the ears, a handful of experienced ones only that had picked it up in action. We're suddenly confronted by a whole series of articles run in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and they were written uh, by a gentleman who had an inside view of the drinking problem, a first-hand experience. I don't think he became a member, but uh, let us say he was a fellow traveler. He really could talk the lingo. And uh, he wrote this series of pieces, and the plane dealer got behind it and said, folks, this is good, come and get it. Editorial every couple of days. These 20 people... We're obliged to take on hundreds and hundreds of calls in a matter of a month or two. And all of a sudden, the thing balloons. And you take a guy into a hospital, and you go in there, he come out jittery, you take him to visit another guy, and then he was a full-blown sponsor. And they fought like the very devil, but they kept on sobering up, and the batting average went right along up, when we thought that only we elder deacons could administer the poker. This proves that we could communicate in size and it proves something else. 
that understanding friends in press and probably later in radio and in all means of communication could speak for us in such a language that it would reach into the drunk and his family and the general public to produce such a result. The very next playing along came John D., whose friends had helped us set up the still empty alcoholic foundation. The foundation was both alcoholic and empty. And all of a sudden, dear old Mr. Richardson, I guess his first member who brought it together, John D.'s friend, came into a trustees meeting and he said, Gentlemen, I have great news. I just had a talk with Junior, and Junior has been watching the progress of this outfit with great satisfaction. And he wants to throw a dinner for Alcoholics Anonymous, and here's a list of the guests. Here's a list of 400 he'd like to send invitations to. And when he put the list in front of us drunks, we looked at it and said, My God, this is worth about $5 billion. And we thought we needed a lot of dough. So on comes the dinner. And uh, John D. Jr. can't be there. He, he really was sick of bed that night. And he sent over Nelson, so well known nationally now. And we imported some drunks from Akron. And they had some distinguished folks there. Some under command, too. Uh, they thinking this was a prohibition deal. One of the boys at the table, we had a drunk planted at each table of the notables. And... One of them turned to one of our, one of the bankers turned to one of our boys and said, well, uh, I presume, uh, Mr. Ryan, that you're in banking business. And, uh, Mr. Ryan drunk said, no, I'm just out of Greystone Soccer. And this kind of warmed things up and it started to thaw. And it looked like the prospect was squeezing some dough out of this thing in order to look to get us off the hook and get some paid missionaries and a hospital chain, these uh, things we needed so badly. Then up got Nelson Rockefeller speaking for his father. And he said, my father wanted you good friends to see this very promising beginning of what may be a great new thing in the world. But this is a work of good will. My father thinks money will spoil it. He just wants to let you know. And at least one billion dollars worth of millionaires got up and walked out and they didn't leave a thin dime behind. This, Mr. Rockefeller released on the press wire the first figure of that kind to stand up in public with this small, trembling society is the only evidence. This person who trusts us, more than three of us have turned up their stools and said to the world, I believe in this. That was a critical, vital communication. 
Then came the victory. Wonderful Jack Alexander. Great newspaper reporter. Served his time on the New Yorker. Moved over to the Saturday Post. Mr. Curtis Fox, the owner down there, has seen in our little Philadelphia group a couple of people get sober. He's gone to the rest of the board, to Summers, the editor. Why don't you do a piece about this society? I believe in it. I've seen it. So Jack was assigned, and Jack had just been doing the Jersey racket. So he came over and laughingly said afterward, his tongue was certainly in his teeth. And on the face of it, it just wouldn't stand. Jack was and is a very deeply spiritual, I may add, a very religious guy without ostentation. And he caught the communication that was here. And I think he was seized with the desire to do all he could and the best he could, and that was a whole lot. He trailed us and one of our committees around for one solid month before he tapped the typewriter at all. And then he tapped out that seat. Oh, it looked a little slangy and but But it was done in the language of the heart. And when that hits the drugs and their families and the citizens of our country in March 1941, the impact was terrific. We had found that we could communicate to our friends. If they could understand and speak a little of our language. And Jack could speak a lot. And the drunks poured in from all directions. And we were a plus. But as you remember, the A book published two years, years earlier said, in the last chapter of the text, the vision for you, it is our hope in future years that the traveler may avoid the temptations of the road when he reaches his destination by finding an Alcoholics Anonymous group and already twos and threes and fives of us are springing up here and there. One of these places being right here in L.A. So the twos and threes and fives have sprung up ready to take the impact of this avalanche. And we have started. Therefore, our survival formula, our whiskey fireproofing, our relief from obsession, and the beginning of our march on the road to freedom under God as a society has begun. On this 25th anniversary, marks a wonderful culmination which, however, can only be a beginning. So may we, in God's sight, 
continue to be worthy of his grace in our quest for freedom. Maybe we will be worthy of public respect and confidence. And may out of this passion stream our brother and sister's suffering, numbering 25 million throughout the world, may we find means to communicate with them what you and I years ago. He was the first one to organize a public meeting in Los Angeles. He established the practice of reading the 12 steps before each meeting, a practice which I understand is still followed in this area. He has been a devoted member of our fellowship, and it is with great pleasure that I give you Mark J. Alan, thank you.
in the American Legion Stadium in Hollywood in honor of our beloved Bill. And it's still another momentous occasion. In 1948, when approximately 6,500 joined in a richly deserved tribute to our celebrated co-founders, Bill and Dr. Bob. And now tonight, as I see before me this vast audience from every state in our blessed union and from many foreign lands as well, I am indeed filled with pride and humility to be one of you and to be here with you. May God continue to shower his blessings upon us all. And may he continue to guide us in our service to each other and to those who may follow us. 